Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers providing you with practical advice. To enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia's National Stroke Foundation and sponsored by Allegan. The media and especially the internet are full of health information and there are so many people out there offering treatments for stroke. It can be very hard to know what to trust. And especially when you have a condition like stroke and you're not well and in need of help, you can be very vulnerable to misinformation. So how do you find information that's based on real evidence and how do you know someone claiming to be a health professional is genuine? We're going to try to find out how to find evidence-based information and how to sort the good from the bad. We'll be speaking to clinical epidemiologist Tammy Hoffman about evidence-based practice and to social worker Jude Cherenkovsky about the pitfalls of looking for treatments and how to avoid them. First though, we have stroke survivor Dan England. Dan's life changed when he had a stroke at only 38 years old, but he's persisted with his rehabilitation and to show just how much he's achieved in 2014 he ran the distance of 1,000 kilometres. He did that to raise awareness and to reduce the stigma of stroke. Thank you for joining us, Dan. You're welcome. Thanks, Chris. Now, I'll get on to your run shortly, but first, could you tell us your stroke story? Well, it was May 16th, 2011. Probably like everyone else, you would have never really paid much attention to a stroke, but I was getting ready for work on a Monday morning and I felt a humming or heard a humming in my left ear and I said to Tanya, what does vertigo feel like? Because I was starting to hear something as well as feel a bit dizzy. And she proceeded to say, why don't you go lie down, which I guess most people would do, just sleep it off. And as I went down to the bedroom, I thought, no, I'll just go do a check and email. And as I went to the office desk, uh, turned the computer on, felt my left arm drop to my, well, not felt it, I could just see it drop down to the uh, lap. And I thought, well, that's strange. And when I looked at it, the, the left hand was like all curled in. And when I pushed, went to push the chair back, only my right leg moved. The left leg didn't want to activate. And I thought, oh, no. Anyway, we're in a sort of a three-sided office desk area. And uh, my wife, Tanya, couldn't hear me, but I yelled out to her. And pr- probably was two minutes before she came into the room. And the room in the, or sorry, our uh, rule in the house is if you need something, you go and get them. You don't yell across the house. And so she comes barreling in and says, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get off? And I said, something's really wrong. I can't feel my left side. And she said, really? And she looked at me and she knew it was serious. And she said, I think you're having a stroke. And oddly enough, it was the National Stroke Foundation's spam email that brought her attention to this because it was probably three months prior. She had seen the fast message and yeah, we called triple O and that was the start of the stroke journey, I guess. Right. Now, and, speaking of journeys, though, you have, as I mentioned, you've been able to run a thousand kilometers. First of all, I just want to ask, how long did it take you to run that distance? Well, it was, uh, let's see, it was, we did it in 35 days, but it was actually 20, I have to get this right, about 25 days of running. We had some time off in between, just recover and have some time down with the family. But yeah, and break it into little little intervals between 40 and 50 kilometers a day. And yeah, over the month of August, it was actually 2012. Okay, 2012. So that was like, that was about a year after your stroke then, was it? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. So there wasn't that long then for you to get up to, to that level of recovery, I guess. Now, did you, how did you manage to get to that point? Physiotherapy, physiotherapy, <laughs> physiotherapy. I'm a firm believer in the conventional treatment with physio and occupational therapy. You know, hard work and, and I would say a very uh, good team between the stroke unit 
starting rehab immediately. I, I think it wasn't even the third day. Um, they had me up on my wheelchair and on sort of sitting up and down, and they just started immediately. I think that was the, the best thing that could have happened was to get me back into the movements uh, as soon as possible. Okay, so you had a very good team working with you there, but did you were there a lot of other people um, out in the community or that you would get information from who were suggesting other different treatments to try? Yeah, look, we, we lived in the outback a long ways from anything and I was getting a little down because the Outback only, well, even with a private health insurance plan, I could still only see a physiotherapist twice or no, once a week and it was a, about a one hour session once a week which leaves you, you know, however many hours the rest of the week practicing but I felt there had to be something else and, you know, I don't like to shed negative light on things but there was a gentleman that was running a gym and he was trying to push uh, a theory and it was really, it was, my wife Tanya wanted anything we could for therapy. So I went along to this gentleman's gym, and I guess I can tell you, but I don't really feel like smearing names. And he charged me $300 for a, a, a listening session, and all he did was push his own theory and then tried to force me to sign up at a gym. Now, I found that really confronting that there was someone who was going to force you to join a gym for 12 months when you've had a stroke, and really I wasn't even able to do anything at the gym other than physiotherapy. Now, I went to my doctor and I asked him what he recommended and the best advice that came from him was what you've had was a medical event. You need a medical treatment and it doesn't come from a gymnasium. And along with the physiotherapist, she said, do I believe in 12 months from now that you'd be better off going to the gym program as well as physiotherapy? No. So I just stuck with my physiotherapy. I guess the do the other factors come into it as well. Like the you said that the the cost commitment and the time commitment they're asking from you does that is that part of deciding whether something is worth trying? Well, when you have a stroke, you really don't have much choice. You know, it, it's either public um, physiotherapy through the regional hospital, or you get to have a private practice, which at the time was so overburdened with everything else between sports and work injuries that they can't just simply give you more than a day a week or one hour a week. Um, so it, it, it basically puts the emphasis of the uh, re- rehabilitation on the individual. I, I find that if you're not determined to fight the stroke and fight the symptoms, I think you will be left in the dark. And I think that's where the depression and all of the other mental issues coming that follow a stroke occur is that it, is, it isn't easy. It's, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Yeah. And I think one of, the, one of the hardest things is when you go to the physiotherapist, they aren't asking you to do things that are comfortable and they're not asking you to do things that you enjoy. You know, I wouldn't do those activities outside of having, uh, having had the stroke. So, no, but every, every week you go back and you go back and you go back and every time you come back, you can see progress. And I think for people who've had a stroke that don't do physiotherapy, one of the hardest things they do is they don't let the physiotherapy work. But through the course of time, what you end up getting is a a timeline where there's events. And I remember physically seeing things like drawing a circle on the wall. Now, I couldn't make the circle connect. So when you take the marker, you go around the big loop. There was no way for me to put the marker back to the beginning. But throughout the times of doing physiotherapy, and then we'd come back and do these benchmark test, you can start to see with your own eyes what actually is happening before you. So like I said, I think physiotherapy and occupational therapy has been tried and true for me, mm-hmm. um, but I never really had any other treatments other than the guy at the gym. But it sounds, again, I guess comes back to the, the people you had working with you, um, like the, I suppose the health professionals, like the, your doc, local doctor and the, 
and the um your other team who you could trust is that is that part of it for you is, is knowing you can rely on certain people or do you think there are other ways that you can um you can assess whether a treatment is evidence based uh, look i think science is all all mean medical anything comes through science and i think if it you know norman doidge if you read his book which was introduced to me by a neighbor his neuroplasticity was laughed at when he brought it up but you know there is things that are evidence based but I think it has to be integrated through a, a general practice or through a you know the Stroke Foundation and its physicians that work that you know work parallel with the the medical system because I think there is a lot of people out there that are begging for other types of treatments and I think there's other people that are seeing that and they're seeing it as a opportunity to make money and I you know I'm very blessed I feel that I've had the best care if I had a stroke I'd want to do it all over again the same way right so on that base do you have any particular advice for other stroke survivors um yeah well I mean I guess first thing is to understand that everybody's stroke is different. I've had hundreds of people ask me on the run or in in the communities where I live, how'd you do it? How'd you get through? How'd you get so quickly back? And, you know, I I have a lot of faith. I I believed in in my faith, but I also think that if you don't believe that you can get better, you you just don't have the energy or the ambition to fight through the difficult moments. Now, again, everybody's strokes are different. I had purely physical loss. I didn't have cognitive or incontinence, or I didn't have any digestive issues. So, I, you know, I was very blessed that it wasn't all of the different things that could have been. And a lot of the people that have come to me have had, you know, I would say the, the, the majority of them have a problem with the memory. And Again, it would be really hard to go see through all of these steps of progress, but you can't remember how bad you were. So I guess to my advice to the people who are having a stroke or starting their stroke rehab journey is to contact and keep with the Stroke Foundation, talk to people. I think communicating in a group forum like the Stroke Foundation has been paramount to meet other people, especially in Outback Australia, because there isn't anyone else. Your GP is a nice guy, but he doesn't have time to be a counselor. And I remember sitting at the waiting room for one of my routine checkups, and I said, man, there's got to be somewhere else to turn. And I looked stroke survivor stories on Google, and up came the National Stroke Foundation, and hence it started from there. And we felt obliged to help other people and did the run. You know, I'm I'm always available. Um, you know, you can contact the Stroke Foundation if you'd like. But yeah, I'm I'm very happy to help people through stroke. I, I really get a lot out of encouraging people um, to get through their stroke journey. Brilliant. Um, well, thank you, Dan. I'm sure you have helped a lot of people there with your your own experience. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us, and I hope you keep up the running as well. No worries. Thank you very much, Chris. Cheers. Did you know you can customise the Enable Me website to suit all your viewing needs? You can choose large size fonts or different alignment of text on your screen, a high contrast screen so that different parts stand out, automatically underline the start and end of each sentence, read in easy English and many more options. Set up once and your personal settings are saved for all your future visits. Just click on the accessibility icon at the top of the screen at enableme.org.au. Professor Tammy Hoffman is a clinical epidemiologist from Bond University who specialises in evidence-based practice. And this is about making sure that health professionals look at the evidence and also that they discuss that evidence with their patients and share in making decisions about treatment.
Thank you for joining us, Tammy. My pleasure. Now, in the introduction there, I used the word evidence a few times. What do we actually mean when we say evidence? Yeah, so in this when we're talking about um, healthcare evidence, we're talking about evidence from research studies. So uh, evidence-based practice is where a health professional considers not just their clinical expertise and experience and not just um, what's going on in the patient's life, but also what research studies tell us about the most um, effective care. And that, that's an important source of information to also consider. Okay, why is that important? Well, because if we rely on things um, like anecdotes, you know, like um, it worked for my neighbour Sue and therefore it'll work for me, um, we know that's unreliable. And also if we rely just on the experiences of others, so it might be, for example, a health professional says, well, the last three patients this treatment worked for, therefore it'll work for you, um, has been shown time and time again to be uh, not accurate. So the only way that we can have reliable information to guide us in terms of what might be the most effective care, the most um, accurate test or the most effective treatment is to do various study designs and actually test in an empirical, in a scientific way, actually put those things to the test. Okay, so what research, uh, what kind of research are we talking about? Can you expand on what you mean by these these different kind of studies? Because when you said, uh, say, someone might say, it worked for my last three patients, that I guess to most people would sound like that is some sort of evidence, some sort of research that's been done. How does formal research differ to that? Sure. So when we're talking about treatment, um, there's a certain study design type that gives the most reliable evidence, and that's something called a randomized trial. So it means we take uh, a group of people and we randomize them, so randomly allocate some of them to get the experimental treatment and some of them to get whatever the comparator is. It might be another treatment. It might just be usual care. And that way, if the two groups are fairly evenly matched at the beginning of the trial and then the trial goes on and one group gets the treatment and one group doesn't, when we re-measure whatever it is that we're measuring, it might be something like pain or quality of life or mobility or anything like that. If the group that got the treatment improved more than the group that didn't, that's one way we can be reasonably sure that they improved because of the treatment rather than a whole other host of other factors which can make muddy the waters. So it could be that without having that comparison group, maybe they were going to get better anyway without the treatment. Maybe there's something else they did at the same time that helped them to get better. So by having a, a controlled trial where we know what one group gets and what one group also gets and we compare the two in a fair way, that way we can be reasonably confident that it was the treatment making any difference rather than anything else. Okay, so could you tell us me a little bit of then your work that you're doing currently with health professionals and um, helping them to use evidence-based practice? Sure. So my work spans across um, nearly every aspect of evidence-based practice, right from teaching um, health professionals when they're at university, but also once they're graduated, what it is and why it's important. And historically, so historically, um, health professionals just relied on doing what they thought was best. So the concept of evidence-based practice is a reasonably new one. It's been around about 20, just over 20 years. And so some of the older generation health professionals, it's still sort of percolating through. So some of my research is about teaching the most effective way of actually teaching these skills to um, new and experienced health professionals, helping them to find ways of quickly finding the evidence. So there's thousands of new research studies coming out every week and no health professional has time to sit down and sift through all those to find the good quality ones that are relevant to their practice. So we teach them some of the most um, reliable 
reliable sources and quick ways of searching. Also, how to check whether the research is good quality. So a lot of what is published, this is surprising to most people, is actually um, flawed and flawed in such a way that we can't actually believe its findings. So it's a very much a finding a needle in a haystack. It's sifting through lots of the uh, studies that we can't rely on and finding those good quality ones we can use, working out how to use them in practice. And then the final step, which is the really important one, is how do we then work with patients and communicate the evidence in a way that can help them make um, informed decisions. So my research covers pretty much all of those steps. Well, that, that is quite a bit. Now, it sounds like there's, it certainly is a lot of challenge just for the health professionals themselves. Um, how then do people going to see a health professional know that the person they're seeing is using this kind of approach, is using evidence in their practice? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think one of the most um, simple ways is just to ask so any time when a health professional makes a recommendation, particularly something to do with getting a test or, or starting a treatment, is to actually ask them, can you tell me what the evidence is for that, for what you're suggesting? And a health professional who is following evidence-based practice should be able to tell you when it's based on, you know, this many studies have looked at this, for example. Also to point out that some, it's not every type of question that people have that we need research evidence for. So things like uh, practical suggestions or or support information, we don't need research evidence for that. We're talking here about when we want to know what's the most accurate test, what's the most effective treatment. So it's just worth realising not every question that a patient will have for a health professional needs uh, evidence behind it, um, but certainly some of them do. Okay, but so then is it is a matter then to be able to, I guess, discern when um, when the evidence is required and whether the as you're saying the evidence is is strong enough how can how can people do that how can they tell whether the information they're receiving or what they're being told is um, is sufficient yeah there's no there's no quick and easy way of doing this um, as I said first of all asking a health professional you know what what's the evidence for what you're suggesting is a good place to start there's three questions that we encourage people to ask the health professional which is what are my options so knowing that there's nearly always more than one option, even if one option is just to wait and watch and see what happens. Um, the second question is, what are the possible benefits and harms of each of those options? And that's where the evidence should start coming in into the answers. You know, we know this many people will be helped by this amount and this many people might, you know, be harmed. And also, how likely are those benefits and harms to happen to me? So if you, if you can have a... Um, a fairly comprehensive discussion with those questions as guiding points, you know that you've considered that the evidence has been considered um, during that conversation. Okay. Now, we are, though, also living in the age of Dr. Google, as I think it's often referred to. Um, is, it, is it right for people to try and, I guess, come into their, their discussions with their health professional informed by, by things that they've read or looked at themselves? Yeah, I mean, certainly the internet is a wonderful source of health information, but, you know, comes with all the cautions. So some of it is good and a lot of it is bad. So it's about being able to filter out the good and the bad. There's no quick and easy way of doing this as a rule of thumb. Generally, um, websites that are government uh, ones like .gov or .gov.au in Australia or .org tend to have more reliable health information than um, ones that have a commercial interest. 
www.thepublicsite.com. So if, there's some basic things you can look at. So who's um, behind the site? Who's funding the site? So it might be a particular company or a product who's trying to sell something. Obviously, that's a, a red flag. Has it? Where's the information come from? Are there any references or evidence citing the sources? Just because there are, though, that doesn't guarantee that it will be good quality information. It's that it might be, you know, someone might have randomly just picked some references and popped them in there. So it is worth um, taking a very sceptical, cautious eye at health information. And then if in doubt, printing it out, taking it into your health professional and going through it with them. And that's the thing that more and more health professionals these days are very used to doing, is actually saying, well, look, yes, there's some evidence for that, what that website's suggesting, you know, would you like to talk about that further? Or, you know, these three things here, no, that's um, that's nothing that's got any research done that's unlikely to help you. So it actually is worth checking with somebody um, and not just taking everything you read at face value. But it is that, as you're saying before, that, that shared approach, that collaboration between the patient and the health professional that we're of assessing the evidence and working out what's best for them. Yeah, absolutely. So that's becoming more and more common and it's an approach called shared decision making because uh, for most things, there are, as I said, there are more than one option um, and it may be that one option suits a patient better for whatever reason. It might be to do with their circumstances and what's going on in their life at that time or their preferences or their values. And so for a patient to make an informed decision, they need to know all the options, the pros and cons of each of them and then work together with their health professional or their team of health professionals to think what matters to me and what's the best thing for me to try at this point in time in my life. Great. Um, do you have any other advice that you would uh, you would give our stroke survivors there if they if they are trying to make these decisions of, of what they can trust and what they can't trust? No, I think certainly as a being very wary of what you do read on the internet, particularly in forums and sort of Facebook posts where it usually is anecdotal evidence. But as I said earlier, it's not for support and practical suggestions and just sharing um, and all of that. That information is absolutely fine. But if it's medical advice about which treatment to go and get or what test you need, that's when you actually need to dig a bit deeper into is this any is there any evidence is it supported on um, reputable health sites some health sites have a system um, called health on the net code the health on the net is a not-for-profit organization that gives sort of a seal of approval if the information is meet certain criteria so it can be worth sort of checking whether it is a reputable website and then certainly anything you see that you're considering even if it's something you think might not have implications like a complementary and alternative medicine or natural products, even still checking those, having that discussion with your health professional and making sure you ask those questions about what's the evidence for this, is this right for me? Fantastic. All right. Well, that sounds like um, some good words to, to base to base the decisions on. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us again. Um, and that was Professor Tammy Hoffman from Bond University. Enable Me is Australia's online stroke community. It's a place where stroke survivors, their carers and supporters can find information, share their experiences and inspire each other with their recovery. Signing up is free and takes just a minute. It allows you to post questions and comments, set and track your own recovery goals and connect with people who understand exactly what you're going through. It's filled with evidence-based resources, videos and stories. It's everything you need to grow stronger after stroke. Sign up now in seconds at enableme.org.au. All right, just before we go on, I have with me here today Lynn from the Stroke Foundation to talk about Stride for Stroke, which is on throughout this November. 
Lynn, can you tell us what is Stride for Stroke? Hi Chris, so Stride for Stroke is our annual fundraising campaign to raise much needed funds and awareness to fight stroke. The great bit about Stride for Stroke is that anybody can take part no matter what their fitness level is. You can ride your bike, swim a few laps of the pool, you can run the marathon. All that matters is that people take the challenge to get moving while helping us in our mission to fight stroke. Okay, so why is it good for people to, to get moving and to be part of something like this? We chose to make our major fundraising campaign a physical challenge for a reason. We know that too many Australians aren't doing enough physical activity and it's literally killing us. Not moving puts your health at risk and combined with things like smoking, poor diet and high blood pressure, it really does put you at serious risk of stroke. So taking part in Stride for Stroke is a great way to keep active while raising money for such an important cause. We know that more than 450,000 stroke survivors are living within our community and every dollar raised makes a difference in how we can support them. There are just too many families that are impacted by stroke and really doing it tough. So since 2014, Stride for Stroke has raised more than $265,000 to support the stroke community. Great. So how can people get involved in it then? It's really easy to register. We're asking people to go to www.strideforstroke.org.au and Stride for Stroke is the number four. You register and then you get your free event kit sent out. Once you've registered, you will get your event kit, but you can also then go online and set up your fundraising page, which you can personalise, and that helps you track your progress through my fitness app or you can do it on your Fitbit or various other technology and then you can ask your friends and family to support you in your challenge. Another great way to do it just to make it a team effort you can get your friends and family or even your work colleagues involved and ask them to join your kit team and that way you can fundraise together and it really helps keep each other motivated and stride in those kilometres through November. Brilliant well thank you very much Lynn that is strideforstroke.org.au thank you Lynn keep striding. Thank you very much. Finally today, we have Jude Cherenkovsky. Jude is a social worker and also the national manager of Stroke Connect for the Stroke Foundation. Thanks for coming in, Jude. Thanks for having me. Now, why is it that uh, people are seeking out all these different treatments when they have a health condition like stroke? I think basically this is the job of recovery. So, um, stroke impact is really individual. And as Dan said earlier, everyone's stroke is different. So, uh, the kind of impacts that you're left with and then the level and pace of your recovery is also very individual. So, really there is no one pathway for stroke recovery, no one treatment, no one therapy and not even really no one health professional that you can go to for all your stroke recovery. So, and then add to that, needs change as your recovery progresses and that can lead you to exploring different things and also um, some impacts can be very difficult or slow to improve and that will definitely lead you to try different things throughout your recovery. Okay, do you think people are particularly vulnerable in the, under this circumstance though? I think sometimes yes, um, anyone that's experiencing a health condition, particularly a long-term health condition like stroke can be vulnerable and we can all be vulnerable in different ways at different times. Um, stroke survivors are a bit up against it I think when they first have their stroke because no one really knows much about a stroke before they or a loved one has one yet in sort of having good information and being having some expertise about stroke and stroke recovery is really important as you go through that work that Tammy was talking about about weighing up your options so stroke survivors always talk about they often talk about needing to go from beginner to expert really and needing to do that quite quickly to start really taking control of their recovery and making good decisions but unfortunately that actually does take time so we might be vulnerable because we're still developing the knowledge base and expertise that we need but beyond that I 
think also life may be very different after a stroke and the feelings that come up because of that can really have an influence on our decision making. So it's very human to look um, when you're experiencing any kind of hardship to look at it as a quest, to expect to be rewarded um, through your efforts um, in your recovery with success, to find it frustrating and difficult when that doesn't happen and also to be pretty persistent in finding the thing that will make a difference to our individual situation. So human beings long for the miracle. It's very natural, absolutely natural. So sometimes part of that can be that our emotional responses uh, can make us vulnerable and I think that the answer is not always to try and be perfectly rational, though for some people that's their natural style and that's what you see them doing. But rather I think what's probably most important is to really be aware of how your emotions might be impacting you as you travel through your recovery um, and consider it in how consider it as a factor in how you make decisions about pursuing particular therapies and treatments. Okay, because as we've heard, there are people who I guess are trying to make money out of uh, sort of exploit this, these situations of vulnerable people, and you know, there's a kind of maybe the quacks or charlatans that people should watch out for. But it can also be, I guess, well-meaning friends and family who will be giving advice and trying to help someone. Mm. Um, how how do you cope with that? Well, I think you know we all give each other advice all the time, and some of that advice is absolutely spot on. Like Dan was talking about his neighbour putting him onto Norman Doidge's book and the impact that that had on him. Um, But getting advice from everyone that you meet is definitely part of the territory when you have a long-term health condition. So you will constantly get asked the question, have you tried? Have you tried? For the people I think that are close to you, your close friends and family, you know, they will also need to go through a process of becoming expert and starting to understand what the evidence is around stroke recovery. So for those people, it's really about bringing them along the journey with you. So take the information that you're gathering and use it to educate them so that they can actually be helpful to you and discuss things in a helpful way. But you will also, I think, need a standard response for the random suggestions um, that, you know, closes that conversation because it actually can get very annoying. So I haven't tried that, but I have a really good recovery place in uh, plan in place and I've got a great team. Thanks for your concern though. Right. That's, that's a good script. If you should get it written on a card perhaps. <laughs> okay. Well, do you, what are your other like top tips that you have for stroke survivors who, you know, for looking for evidence based treatments and health professionals? Mm. So I think the most important thing is actually to develop your own expertise and your own knowledge base first. Um, If you understand the reasons behind the impairments, the processes that you're dealing with, you can make better decisions about treatments and therapies. So you're less likely to think that something without a great deal of evidence is going to be the magic pill if you actually can understand what are the underlying reasons why things are the way they are. Use the internet in a smart way. I mean, I think that uh, ill-informed views and people who are really just after your money. They've been around since time began, but the internet has really ramped those things up. But flip side is that you can use the internet to do your own research and develop your own knowledge so that, as Tammy was saying, you go into your consultations with your doctor and other professionals really well informed. Um, I always start with the Better Health Channel. It's a Victorian website, but it's very evidence-based. It's very well written. So start with the government and the reputable organisations websites. That's a really good place to start. I think the other thing to think about when you start weighing up your options is that, you know, recovery can be hard work. So 
there is definitely um, some weighing up that you need to do about when you're considering a therapy or treatment, you know, how much time am I going to have to put into this? How much is it going to cost? And the higher those things start to go, the more evidence you want to see before you start committing to, to the particular kind of therapy. I think that's quite important. Also, we always say on Strokeheim really, as everyone does, if it's too good, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But the other good thing to keep in mind is cost. I notice with a lot of the things where there's not a lot of evidence behind them that sometimes they're actually too expensive to be good and that's a bit of a warning sign as well. So sometimes the ingredients or the components of the therapy are quite mysterious and sometimes also they're quite commonly available but the price is high. There's only one place to get it from. We tend to think, yep, that's a good indication to be careful. Um, as humans, we do tend to associate costs with quality as well so you need to be a bit careful about that one. And finally, I think the other thing that we often talk to people about on Strokeline is really as you progress through your recovery and you're working through um, different therapies and treatments, just keep in mind how you're feeling and how your quality of life is going. So there is definitely a point where you can be fine yourself pushing too hard. And generally, you'll find that this starts to make you feel pretty terrible. So make sure, yes, work your recovery, and but make sure you're also making sure that you're thinking about how your recovery is making you feel as you go along. Okay, very good. Um, now, as Jude mentioned, there, there is. Uh, you can call Stroke Line. You can talk to people on Stroke Line. We have health professionals there who can answer your questions about various treatments or anything else you need to know in your stroke recovery. Um, you can call Stroke Line on one eight hundred seven eight seven six five three or one eight hundred S T R O K E. Now that is all we have time for today. If you like what you've heard, we're going to ask you again. You can help us out by giving us a good rating and a review on iTunes or whichever other podcast service you're using. Thank you once again to our guests, Dan England, Tammy Hoffman and Jude Cherenkovsky. At Allergan, we know every stroke is different and so is every recovery. After stroke, many people have muscle weakness and loss of movement, but you might also be experiencing tight muscles or stiffness in your arms, fingers or legs. It's called spasticity. You might have muscle spasms or uncontrollable jerky movements in your arms or legs, changes in your posture or unusual limb positions, and it can cause pain. It can be treated though. Physiotherapy or occupational therapy can help you adapt and improve your movement. There are other possibilities too, such as injections with botulinum toxin type A, electrical stimulation of the muscles, electromyograph or EMG biofeedback and muscle relaxing medication. What is important is to start your rehabilitation as soon as possible after a stroke and to discuss your goals and progress with your rehabilitation team at every stage. Allergan is proud to bring you this Enable Me podcast. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at our website, enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. We also have health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your health professional. If you would like to suggest a topic or provide feedback, contact us via the website enableme.org.au.
The music in this podcast is Signs by Stroke Survivor Antonio Ianella and his band, The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio's studio, which you can find out more about at www.studio499. That's F-O-U-R-99.org.au. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the National Stroke Foundation in Australia with the support of Allegan.